Hi there, it's Maggie with Minds on Mushrooms. I was so fortunate to have Big Psych board members, Jessica Nielsen and Brian Ebert on the podcast. Big Psych is a psychedelic activist organization here in Minneapolis. Not only is Jessica Nielsen a neuroscientist with the University of Minnesota, she also happens to be the lead chair for the Minnesota Psychedelic Task Force that Governor Walls put into place. Together, Jessica and Brian co-founded Decrim Coalition, which essentially made psychedelics the lowest priority of any offense here in Minneapolis. Cheers, Jessica and Brian. I can't wait to pick your brains. All right, welcome back to Minds on Mushrooms. We're still here with big psych folks. Um, today, we have Jessica Nielsen and Brian Ebert. Um, Jessica, we're gonna talk about your credentials. There's quite a few. You're a neuroscientist and psychedelic researcher. You've been exploring psilocybin um, for about 10 years now. Um, I've been exploring psychedelics for 10 years. I first started working with ayahuasca oh, okay. gotcha. um, and started to realize um, a path forward in kind of the clinical research domain with ayahuasca in the United States was pretty much impossible mm -hmm. uh, given the USDA and the FDA and how hard it is to work with botanical products in this country and kind of the Western medical model regulated system of like using something that can't really be standardized in terms of like active concentrations of, of the drug that they're trying to test. So in the case of ayahuasca, that would be dimethyltryptamine. Okay. Um, and so there was a big push at the time. This was around like 2016 um, when I was starting to kind of move away from ayahuasca research and a lot of people were really putting all of their eggs into the basket of psilocybin. And they're like, if you're going to be doing clinical research with psychedelics, a lot of people were really pushing that most people need to be focusing on psilocybin so mm. we can get enough data out into the domain to push that over the finish line for FDA approval. Sure. Um, and you recently, well, you're, you've been appointed to the Minnesota Psychedelic Task Force that was put together by Governor Walls. Have you guys started meeting or let's talk about where you are with that and any updates? Yeah, so uh, we haven't had our first meeting yet. We oh. have it on the books for November 6th. Um, and I think our first um, order of action is to select a committee chair, Okay. Um, a task force chair. So that's kind of a, we just have to like vote on which of us will be the chair. Wow. Um, I've thrown my hat in the ring for that, so I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, but it, it basically will be like the person that like runs the meetings and speaks to Congress when, you know, the next legislative session starts. We need to kind of have a plan for them that's based on the scientific literature about how to incorporate psychedelic medicine into our current Minnesota state healthcare system. And I wanted to talk about, because you both, Brian, and you were both co-founders of the Decrim, um, what, what do we call it? Decrim you pronounce it right. Because yeah. <laughs> it ends with the MN coalition. Yeah. So what was the process there? And um, did you advise Mayor Fry? And how did that all <laughs> go down? I think I'll let Brian start take, off. Okay. He did a lot of the legwork in the early days. Yeah. Yeah. So it evolved out of the Psychedelic Society of Minnesota. And there's just a group of us, maybe like 30, 40 people even to start. And we broke out to a bunch of different committees and we adapted it based off the decriminalize nature Oakland oh, okay. um, resolution. And then we adapted it to fit our city. And we initially went through city council and we like unofficially had the votes to get it passed in April of 2020, which... 
and was not the best time to try to sure. pass legislation. And then we had the murder of George Floyd mm. and understandably took a back seat. And then I think due mostly in part to Jessica's credentials, we got a meeting with the mayor. Um, things kind of went on hold for about a year or two and then ended up getting a meeting with the mayor. And then within, he says, like within 15 minutes, you know, we convinced him in that meeting and it was all of us, the big psych board. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. Well, good work there. And just for our viewers, I'd like to talk about exactly where the law stands with psychedelics. Um, we know it's not decriminalized, but... Yeah. Um, can you please share just so the average person knows? Yeah. Yeah. So everything that's done at the city level is deprioritization. And so decriminalization, even though like we've said that phrase to you refer to this resolution, which is technically incorrect and most other cities have as well. So decriminalization proper needs to happen at the state level. And that's where you're actually changing the criminal code. Mm -hmm. The disclaimer of I'm not a lawyer, but I'm interested in this and helped work on it. Um, so deprioritization is where basically the city agrees that they're not going to use any funds to like detain, arrest or prosecute people that are involved in this case in the growing, gathering or gifting of psychedelic plants and fungi. Wow, that is so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Um, Jessica, is there any studies that you're currently working on or any that you have? Um, I'm specifically interested in studies regarding psilocybin and any findings that you can share with us? <laughs> yeah, so I have, there's a couple studies I'm working on. Um, one is a study that's been going since 2021, uh, fall of 2021, where we've been giving psilocybin to healthy people. Uh, we're not using it to test any treatment efficacy for anything. We're just looking at what psilocybin is doing to the brain and how the brain processes visual information. And then also, you know, there's this hot buzzword, um, called neuroplasticity, which is just the brain's ability to change. I wouldn't call it a buzzword because it's just a staple mechanistic term in the field of neuroscience, but it's basically just trying to create the optimal condition so the brain can change and rewire itself given uh, specific stimuli. So we do this when we learn, when we're exposed to novelty, when you exercise, like it just, it happens in pretty much almost everything you do, but what gets reinforced is what's most salient to kind of your own individual neural processing. So because it looks like things like psilocybin are so good at being able to um, rewire, re rewire the brain and help with some of these really kind of stuck mental health conditions like depression and addiction. The underlying theory is that it's it's because of this neuroplasticity phenomenon that it's making the brain able to change mm -hmm. um, given the right stimuli. So one of the points of that study is seeing like to what extent is that happening after a high dose psilocybin experience and people that have ample experience taking psilocybin. So we only recruit people that are comfortable sure. navigating that space and aren't there to like seek treatment for depression or anything. Mm -hmm. And then we do a time course of neuroimaging. So basically putting people in a, in a scanner that takes pictures of their brain. Wow. And seeing if we can detect any changes that happen after one of these big doses of psilocybin um, and seeing how long that lasts and where it happens. And we're starting to find that it, it's really context dependent. So the so psilocybin is able to kind of crack open this neuroplasticity capability for the brain to change, but it really matters what you prime it with mm -hmm. to actually train something specific. Because when you're learning, you're wanting to learn something specific. You're not just wanting to have a bunch of activity in your brain and then not have it directed towards anything because you can get a big flurry of activity, but if you don't train it into something, mm -hmm. all of that will just go away after about a week or so. So you really have to train it. And so that's where like 
integrative psychotherapy or, you know, integration is a big thing where it's just like really taking that potential and focusing that energy into something specific. So if you like want to learn a new language or you want to yes. learn some bad behavior that you have, it's a really good way to get that gear rolling, but it doesn't do all the work for you. And so we're just trying to see like, how much is that possible? To what extent? How long does it last? And can we tweak with it? Can we tweak it a little bit? So that's one study. The other study that's just getting up and running, um, I'm currently on medical leave, so I'm not sure what the status is of that. I'll be returning in December, um, but it's a phase three clinical trial with psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. So they'll be enrolling about 10 people. Um, it's one site of a multi-site um, phase three clinical trial. So there's 33 sites around the world. Okay. We'll be one of them at the University of Minnesota. Wow. So they want to enroll like 300 people total. And so we're just trying to get a little piece of that total enrollment criteria. Sure. Yeah. It's all so exciting. And yeah, I just have so many questions for me because I, from my experience with psilocybin, um, it was so amazing to me that I, it, within 10 days, this is what happened to me. I'm just sharing my story. Um, I was microdosing with the intention to hopefully quit drinking um, for 30 days. Um, but after 10 days, I just, it was like, I magically, my mind was erased of any want or any, I just didn't want to consume alcohol, I think for the rest of my life. Um, so is there any way to talk about that <laughs> scientifically? I feel, um, I was sharing with Jade, my own parents. So they are so freaked out about Maggie doing a podcast on psychedelics and, um, you know, it's not legal. Um, so I'm just trying to look for scientific ways or terms to talk to them about how psilocybin works in our brains to kind of work to help with addiction mm -hmm. specifically. I know that was a loaded and long question. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a good question that I, I think we're still trying to figure out the mm -hmm. answers to. Um, one of them's in on this, this notion, this hypothesis around neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's been some really good work coming out of some animal research that's been done at Johns Hopkins from Gould Dolan's lab, where she's shown that the duration of the psychedelic experience usually predicts how long those potential brain changes will last that I was talking about. And so I think in the context of addiction, like addiction is, is what we would call a maladaptive type of pattern where people are learning these kind of coping strategies that help provide temporary relief and you get a bit of a dopamine hit, but it actually contributes to worsening of the pathology of the condition uh, because that kind of reward system is kind of a band-aid for a larger problem. And I think what's good with psychedelics is one, it's cracking open the brain's ability to change. And through some other mechanisms that we don't fully understand, it's able to unlock a lot of subconscious material that people are able to bring to the surface and process that might help to diminish their motivation to drink. And so I don't know that it's necessarily changing the brain in the context that it's just rewiring it and getting rid of all of that, but it's getting at deeper psychological premises of like, why are you drinking? Why are you trying to avoid this, that, or the other? Mm -hmm. And so it's really hitting that while giving the brain the ability to make changes that will hopefully be long lasting. Gotcha. And but it's all very kind of early days. Like right. we really don't know a lot about like the neurological mechanisms other than what's happening in some of these like early pilot studies with neuroimaging and people, some animal studies. And there's obviously thousands of years of context from indigenous uses and safe recreational right. uses for the last several decades. 
but the science around that has not really caught up to the kind of cultural knowledge that we have around these things. Sure. It's like the war on drugs kind of ceased everything, but I'm, for me, personally happy there is such a stigma. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking about it and celebrating. Um, you know, I feel like here in Minneapolis, especially, it's kind of like revolutionary changes that are exciting. Um, and Brian, I wanted to talk to you. So you do therapy, right? Yeah. Um, psychedelic therapy. Yeah. Is that, do you have your own practice or talk to us about that? Yeah. So I am just starting out. So I am a practicum therapist. So I practice under supervision. Um, so basically it's like an intern in the therapy space. And so I just want to be really clear, you know, <laughs> like sure. represent myself uh, properly. So I work with a team of my friends who are also psychedelic therapists. So it's the Practices Catalyst Insight Collective. It's just a small psychedelic assisted psychotherapy clinic in St. Anthony, so right by Northeast Minneapolis. Okay. Um, and we do ketamine assisted psychotherapy. We also do like preparation and integration for those who are, you know, embarking on their own psychedelic journey, like outside of a clinical setting. And then also like traditional just talk therapy as well. So I'm just part of that practice of clinicians. Cool. And is your hope if and when psychedelics or more psychedelics become available you know do you are you so excited about that to expand your practice oh yeah yeah day one yeah day one we can use mdma we'll be dosing someone with mdma day one we can use psilocybin we'll be dosing somebody with psilocybin yeah i mean we we really want to do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy ketamine assisted psychotherapy is great and it's very good at a very specific couple of things mm -hmm. and there's all these other things that things like psilocybin and mdma can do that's just harder to do with ketamine so yeah we'll be expanding the second we can how was it that ketamine is the legal option right now is yeah basically it never became as illegal as the other psychedelics and this is due to its status as an anesthetic and so it was used heavily in like the world wars i think at least world war one but for sure world war two and so it's just always been schedule three mm -hmm. and schedule three substances can be prescribed by a medical prescriber and so we work with a doctor who can prescribe ketamine so it's schedule three which um, some of the benzos are scheduled for amphetamines are scheduled too. So it's like, it's kind of in those realms of things you might go to a doctor to get a prescription for, mm -hmm. and then we, they can prescribe it. And then we can just have them take that while we're conducting psychotherapy sessions, basically. So in a perfect world where things are legalized, how would somebody let, you know, they want to, they're curious about therapy and how would you talk to them about which route to go down ketamine versus psilocybin versus MDMA. I'm sure it's very specific. You're going to, you know, intake and hear um, their needs and goals. But can you talk about specifically, you know, MDMA versus psilocybin and what sorts of feelings taking MDMA would have <laughs> that are different than yeah. psilocybin or ketamine? Yeah. Yeah. I think M MDMA is probably the most different one. So like we don't even really call it a psychedelic. It's like intactogen. A lot of times is what people call it. Um, so I would say if the indication is like severe trauma, MDMA is most likely the most appropriate place to start. Oh, wow. Okay. And so just and that's not to say that's all it's good for, like couples counseling, yes. like MDMA for couples. That's going to be fantastic. You know, I've been hearing a lot about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. And whether you're doing that in the therapy office or just with your partner at home, like there's a lot of benefit to be had there. 
Um, psilocybin, I think, can just get at the roots of things a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. just from my perspective, than like something like ketamine can do. And then a lot of times the changes can be a little bit more durable. Mm-hmm. And so like they last longer. Gotcha. You know. I think um, when we're talking about, I just want to touch on microdosing for, you know, when we look at microdosing <laughs> in small amounts, um, over time, does that accumulate to like a macro or with what's your perspective um, as far as dealing with your shit or, you know, your intention is to kind of deal with some trauma? Um, can those benefits be achieved microdosing as they would from taking a macro dose? <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. Again, I don't think we have a clear answer to that. Um, my default, just based on my own experience, is that it's the macro doses where a lot of the big healing experiences are going to be had because you're able to get into this state where you're accessing mm-hmm. the subconscious material that's driving a lot of the pathologies that might precipitate some mental illnesses or, you know, unlocking repressed trauma that you might not have remembered. Um, the microdosing. I mean, I'm just going to express a bias that I don't really think it works too well in the way that people think it does. Um, But that is also an artifact of a lot of the scientific studies that are doing microdosing are not really well designed to be able to test it beyond a placebo effect, which is why we have like double blind randomized placebo controlled trials to get at that. Because if people really want to get better and they take something that they believe makes them better, they will feel better. Mm-hmm. And so we have to like scientifically account for that in a lot of these studies. Sure. And I haven't seen anything that's been very convincing in the vein of microdosing doing much. I will say my perception is changing a little bit on this because of work I've been doing with spinal cord injury. So my main background in neuroscience is in the way that I learned about trauma in the nervous system is through spinal cord injury and brain injury. And there are quite a few people now that are hearing all the hype about psychedelics for depression and addiction and PTSD. And people living with spinal cord injury have all of these conditions, but they also have this very severe neurological problem Mm -hmm. um, where the brain is just not communicating with the body, but they're taking psychedelics and having these really intense physical reactions that are borderline dangerous um, that we don't fully understand um, because the same receptors that are activated in your brain by psychedelics, you also have in like your muscle tissue at the neuromuscular junction. So they basically get these really strong muscle contractions for the duration of the trip, however long the drug is active and it's not something they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're experiencing this even on a microdose. So now I'm starting to think, well, <laughs> it's clearly doing something at the receptor level. It's much more prominent when there is some sort of um, dysregulation or there isn't like the auto feedback that usually happens when something's getting overstimulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing with them. Um, and so it is doing something. I just, I don't, I'm not convinced yet in terms of like the mental health space mm-hmm. that it is doing enough to really, I think it's helping like an SSRI would help Sure, symptom okay. management, but yeah. I don't think it's going to get at the root cause of why those symptoms are manifesting. I think that's where the macrodoses under, you know, supervision with somebody that knows how to hold space for somebody, mm-hmm. especially if you're dealing with really difficult charged traumatic content mm-hmm. is really good to have that in a setting, but having a bigger experience will kind of get you there. Yeah. much quicker. And I think the microdoses are just good at kind of keeping things at bay. I'm trying to talk about if there's somebody that is struggling with their own mental health or addiction, you know, when I was in that spot, I felt like I had no one to talk to, even though my dad runs AA meetings, like that was not my path. 
Um, so I want to talk about and, and frame it up where, you know, this is an option, another option, and, a, and it should be more of a normal option. Um, maybe I should just talk. <laughs> but we don't have, yeah, I was just wanting to kind of like get hearing maybe from Jessica or you, if there's people that want to work on something and need help, you know, talking about accessibility, but I know it's hard to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why we wanted to focus on decriminalization um, so that people could source it themselves, right? So they could grow it themselves. They wouldn't risk persecution or prosecution rather. Um, and connecting with like, well, one, if somebody's really wanting to grapple with serious mental health problems and trauma, like speaking with a therapist, like somebody that actually has the tools to help with that, because while they might be able to be supportive of somebody's psychedelic process and, and experience, ultimately, like if there's deep psychological trauma and depression and other things going on, like there are professionals that know how to do that. Um, and that will be needed in addition to doing psychedelics. And sure. so I think in today's landscape, you know, there's so much literature now on the therapeutic potential that I don't think that it's as stigmatized as people would, would, would think. Um, but I've also been entrenched in this field for a very long time. I started working in this field in 2011. And to me, I'm just like, yes, this is, this is where the field is going. And any person working in the mental health space, if they aren't aware of the therapeutic <laughs> potential of psychedelics and they're not doing their due diligence to stay on top of their continuing education. Right. Um, I've noticed this with a lot of psychiatrists I work with where they're just like blissfully unaware um, of it and still think it's a stigmatized drug. It's like, well, if you follow like what the FDA is doing and the clinical trials, like it's really not that fringe anymore. I mean, MDMA is about to be approved by the FDA for PTSD probably in the next year. Psilocybin will hopefully, sure. if those phase three trials are successful, get approved for psilocybin. And I think that's what the public needs is that stamp of approval from the FDA saying these things are legitimate. Another way is to reference the thousands of years of indigenous uses that have been done safely and effectively for a very long time. But the fact that we have to force them through our Western medical model and the FDA to convince everyone else that they're, they're safe and effective is a bit of a problem, I think. And I think like MDMA, for example, was legal and was being used in the 80s to treat before what we did, didn't used to have a categorization for PTSD, but what was PTSD at the time? Just I think they called it like combat syndrome or mm -hmm. oh, shell shock or something like that. And they were giving it to couples in couples therapy. And then the rave culture got a hold of it and the DEA freaked out and they made it illegal. Fast forward 40 years, billions of dollars later, how many people have died from complications of having PTSD to now the FDA going to approve it for the thing it was being used for initially when they made it illegal. So I feel like we need to also grapple with that aspect of like the war on drugs and like, why are we taking things that we already know are safe and useful and having to force them into a system right. that doesn't <laughs> value all of that information as legitimate, you know, scientific evidence. Um, so I think it's just really kind of being transparent about what is known. What is the data on this? The data is pretty solid in terms of the therapeutic potential. And so I think it's just finding a competent therapist or facilitator who isn't going to um, shame you for wanting to explore psychedelics. I know there are some people that will just think of that as another substance use disorder. Right. And so I think it's, it's finding the right therapist, finding the right community to help because a big aspect of getting well from very serious mental health issues is having a good social support system, whether it's family or friends. Um, and so just, I feel like all of that needs to converge together. 
but in my mind, it already is normalized. Right. Based on how things were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Like now the fact that it's like on the cover of Time magazine or it's being published in very prominent scientific journals. That, I saw that you know, article, oops, <laughs> this Sunday um, on the New York Times, or it was in the, the big mushroom. I think it was more or less um, about like a festival or dressing. I don't know, but it was pretty cool to see. Um, yeah, for me personally, I feel that it's not, you know, there still is such a stigma, especially with my group of friends and family. Um, it's interesting, like alcohol, it's like <laughs> so ingrained in um, me just growing up and my my father, you know, was an alcoholic for half of my life. Um, and it's, I just want it to be just more normalized and we can speak how it's healthy for our brains versus killing our brain cells. And I think just even with my immediate group of friends, you know, it's not even an option, you know, let's just go to the wine. Um, so again, that's why we do things like this and have podcasts and guests and <laughs> talk about it to normalize. Well, one thing I do want to point out is like, I feel like personal narratives, especially when you're trying to reach like a single person versus like a broad audience, like the podcast will get this out to a broad audience or a news article will, but like trying to change an individual's mind, you have to make it personal. You have to make it emotional. You have to connect with something that they would resonate with. Mm -hmm. So for like alcohol use disorder, I mean, if you're talking about like the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was founded by Bill Wilson, who found a lot of like one of, one of the steps of like being able to connect with a higher power mm -hmm. came from his experiences with LSD. I know. And I had this conversation with my own father. And um, to me, it's just, I mean, I'd be kind of angry if I was an AA goer only because I believe they tell, you know, if you're an AA, you're not even supposed to have like a fake beer, you know, and then here we are using cigarettes. medicine that's, you know, solving the world's problems or attempting to. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, that's my goal is I'm trying to make it emotional and just, you know, I, for me, I've never felt healthier or happier. Um, and I, I, I use it as a tool, you know, to just be positive and, you know, spread positive energy. And, um, I, I just wish everyone could see. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like it's it's knowing your audience and how to cater to what what will connect with them. Yeah. Um, I know that psychedelics has seemed a lot less controversial in the drug policy front amongst uh, Republicans, uh, which seemed a little surprising to those of us that are more liberal because we would think like, oh, they just hate all drugs. Yeah. But <laughs> and unfortunately, I think veterans have been tokenized in this vein, but basically leveraging that angle that like a lot of veterans have PTSD and depression and they, they themselves will advocate for wanting to use cannabis and psychedelics to help with that. And so I think that's how that has kind of bridged that kind of political divide. Um, and so it's just kind of figuring out like, what is the audience that you're trying to change their mind about this and normalize it? What is an issue that's important to them and kind of reframing it in that context, assuming that that evidence is there. Yes. I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to be cognizant of time. So is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about? Or do we have any questions from the audience? Oh, definitely. Um, but okay. yeah, I just, I was actually curious. So I did a, um, a podcast with a woman who's a therapist with like 
pedophiles and all that stuff. And it, which was a, a, it was, it was really fascinating because we talked about just, um, she read her, she wrote her dissertation on a lot of different treatment options and they go as far as doing like putting fetid meat in an amulet, you know, to like reprogram their brain. They try to do this Pavlovian thing when you get aroused, you sniff it. So as you're talking about this, it makes me wonder because she came out the other side of that kind of hopeless, you know, like just saying like, I'm not seeing a lot of uh, results here with that. Have they ever examined um, mushrooms for treating things like that? You know, like, I mean, severe, severe, um, cause you know, it's what it is, is giving perspective. Right. And that's one of the things that they say that that's why a lot of those abusers, it's because they feel whatever awkward around peers and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess I can't speak to that like, right. specific set of conditions, <laughs> but I, I do want to speak to this, like, like serious and persistent men- mental illness. Like there are a lot of things that we're considering contraindications for psychedelic clinical trials, like schizophrenia, psychotic spectrum disorders, some personality disorders, things like that. And I want to say it with a word of caution, but there is like an extensive history of clinical use of using psychedelics to treat things like that, like schizophrenia, psychosis, things like this kind of wow. before, like this is like before they became illegal again, like in like the sixties and things like that. Like Stan Groff was one of the big researchers and there's like the Spring Grove Psychiatric Research Institute um, and one other. And it's like, there's a very high level of care that these types of cases need where it's like inpatient treatment, you know, up to like 80 psilocybin or high dose LSD sessions. And like, you know, they can't go home in between because it causes intensification of symptoms, you know, in between sessions and things like that. But if you have trained and skilled facilitators who understand like how to manage the transference and countertransference and these kind of like prolonged reactions that can occur, you can actually treat those conditions that we're considering like, you know, we can't touch that, you know, those, those people are excluded from the trials. And so I think the landscape is going to change a lot. There was actually, I've been talking about this for a while now, and I feel a little validated because there was a paper that came out recently talking about this, just being like, these things work for a lot more than what we're, we're being a little bit conservative right now being like, okay, we're going to test this exact condition in this exact set of things. They can't have any of these kind of confounding factors, but like we have a history of clinical use of like addressing all these more complex cases to like pretty great success. What do you see as the frontier um, things that you can kind of treat down the line maybe like, or is there something that you're hopeful that it will work toward? Yeah. I mean, what I'm most interested in is like looking at schizophrenia and psychotic spectrum disorders. I think that's something that seems the scariest and it feels scary for a lot of clinicians. And and like, if you do it wrong, you almost certainly can make it worse. Mm-hmm. But if done properly with the right facilities, with the right clinical support, I think that those conditions can not only be like managing the symptoms, but actually like a transformational healing potential where the person is no longer affected by that condition. What about bipolar disorder? Would you like yeah. include that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. bipolar as well. And like, once again, this is all with the caveat that like, of course, you know, you need a very specific high level of care for these. Don't go cases. home and just yeah, start exactly. treating yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so okay. this is down the line. But yeah. yes. Yeah. This was born out of, I mean, obviously there's a lot of evidence from this Spring Grove uh, Research Institute that Stan Groff was a therapist in, and he wrote all of this in his book, LSD Psychotherapy, kind of detailing how all that happened. Um, and then there's also um, a couple studies now looking at bipolar depression with psilocybin. They're trying to treat people while they're in the depressive state, not the manic state. Mm. Um, 
But even that population has been very much excluded from a lot of the research. And so people are starting to open up. I think there's been a couple survey studies trying to get at what is the perspective of people that are using these recreationally or just on their own that have these different kind of conditions that Brian was talking about and trying to figure out like, what does that therapeutic setting look like for them? And then and a, a group of therapists coming out with this like position or commentary piece in a prominent you know medical journal saying, we do believe this is possible, but the amount of care Mm-hmm. It's going to be so much greater. And so it's just sort of just trying to like ease it back into the like the lexicon of, of our society of like what we think of as, as a contraindication. Because, I mean, you'll look at every single clinical trial on clinicaltrials.gov with psychedelics, and that is always an exclusion criteria. Always. Yes, always. I mean, and even talking, I was at the liquor store the other day buying my favorite THC beverages, and the guy behind the counter we were talking about psychedelics and he he has a history. I don't know exactly, I don't want to coin what he had, but he was talking about, you know, schizophrenia is in his family. So he's so scared. Well, and as we discussed, you sh- should be scared when you're using new medicines, but it's just, um, I feel like they just feel excluded or they're altogether not an option for them. And it's exciting to hear that it could be, you know, valuable and lots to learn about that in the future so it's exciting can i sorry can i just put one last little thing on that okay yeah Yeah. and so i'm an advocate for people engaging with these substances on their own terms like even you know me as a therapist i don't think everyone needs to go to a psychedelic therapist to get a psychedelic experience i think people from those types of population of serious and persistent mental illness should strongly consider waiting until we have the right like high levels of care and facilities to treat those disorders versus trying to do it on their own just because of the types of reactions that can occur. So 100% and thank you. um, Last thing would be kind of um, on the theme of what she, uh, Maggie brought up earlier about um, using it for treatment, alcohol or drug, um, whatever uh, use is, you know, you see it as like a macrodose and then you said there's some sort of focus you have to put on it, you know, afterward, like some work along with that. What does that work look like what does it do to the brain you know like basically why does that work what like physiologically i guess yeah again good question that we're still uh working out the answers to um so in a lot of the the therapeutic protocols that are used for the clinical trials uh, with psychedelics for different conditions they usually pair it with an evidence-based psychotherapy uh, so something that we already know works for that condition. So for addiction, it might be motivational enhancement therapy. So you're really augmenting the efficacy of that existing therapy. And with the psychedelic on board, it cracks open the brain's ability to change. And therefore, it can integrate and rewire the brain using that existing therapeutic modality to reinforce a cognitive pattern that is is better for that specific deficit. So it's really trying to like identify like what's not active or what might be overly active and trying to like reprogram it and using very specific cognitive tools that is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, And so there's a variety of these things that are used. Um, So for depression, it might be uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And so it's really just tailored to like, what is the, the cognitive domain you're trying to train? What is the thing you're trying to change? And you gear some behavior or practice or a therapy that can really promote that. And you do it within a specific window of time after the experience while the brain is still able to be changed. So so if it's a, like, whatever, you're kicking heroin, for instance, you 
take a strong trip? And then like, what, what sort of therapies, I'm not trying to get an at home uh, treatment here. I'm just truly curious, like how that bears out or like what it looks like, I guess. Do you want to speak to that? I'll tell you. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think we're still working this out. Okay. Um, I do know that, you know, there's two separate um, clinical trials with psilocybin, one um, looking at major depressive disorder and one looking at treatment-resistant depression. They're both technically major depressive disorder. One just isn't responsive to treatment. So it's a little bit more um, severe. Um, and in one of those trials, they're not doing any integrative psychotherapy. So they're not, they're just mm-hmm. trying to see how well does the drug help with depression symptoms. And then there was another study that did a lot of like psychotherapy afterwards and they showed therapeutic benefits in the one that did all of the integrative psychotherapy for about a year. Mm. Whereas the other one that didn't do anything only lasted for about three weeks. So wow. it is it is doing something. We don't fully understand what it's doing to the brain, but it is potentially able to prolong those therapeutic benefits because it's capitalizing on the brain's ability to change and using evidence-based techniques that target the specific part of their brain that's not working properly given their condition and trying to ramp up its function so that it can work the way that it's supposed to. Uh, so it needs to be, it needs to be tailored to whatever the yeah, person yeah. wants to change. And the, but the, the bottom line is that it's able to ch- probably change whatever it is that needs to be changed to an extent. Like there's only so much like plasticity can only happen in, in certain parts of the brain. Um, same thing with neurogenesis. Like you, there's only so much you can do. The brain has a limited amount of energy. So it's really figuring out where is that potential possible and what kind of tools can we use to um, prolong that or accentuate it or. And do things like this exist where you're looking at an image of a depressed brain and then the same brain that's rejuvenated or, healthy or fixed and you know just just is there images that you can look at that show activity new activity versus a depressed sad brain i mean again it's really complicated and trying to decipher what brain activity is doing in terms of like looking at a brain scan using a magnetic Mm -hmm. magnetic resonance imaging and mri and being able to say, okay, this flurry of brain activity means that this is happening. And so really all we can do is just kind of make our best guess approximations of this amount of brain activity is translating to this therapeutic, you know, recovery. Gotcha. And, but I don't know that we can say that that's necessarily causal. But one thing that we're noticing is that um, on psilocybin, there's just a lot more networks in the brain. So a network is a, is a collection of different parts of the brain that all work together to achieve some specific task. And so... We know what that looks like in a normal brain, but when you give someone psilocybin or LSD, all these different parts of the brain are now talking to each other. So it's like, is that something that we want to emphasize Mm -hmm. in a therapeutic setting? So being able to say these parts of the brain in this person are lit up and now we can do something to try to drive that in a way that helps alleviate their symptoms. And so I think the brain is very complex. We're now discovering that like you can have a brain fingerprint, you know, everybody's brain is very, very unique, even in the way that it it gets activated doing specific tasks. And so it's really going to come down to like precision medicine, personalized medicine. If we are going to be using brain-based approaches to try to figure out whether something works, it has to be tailored to the individual because their brain's going to respond differently than someone else. It's it's complicated. It's not (laughs) as straightforward. I think the main thing to look for is does the person's quality of life improve? Right. You know, we don't really yeah. care what's going on in their brain. That's interesting for mechanism and to understand the why, but it's really like, and you hear a lot of clinicians saying this, I don't care how it works. I just care that it works. Is my patient getting better? Mm-hmm. Are the symptoms improving? Is their quality of life improving? Right. There's a lot of treatments that the clinician will say, 
this really works and your symptoms are going down, but the person themselves does not feel better. Right. So we need to tackle both. Sure. And I don't think that we're going to find that out from just looking at the brain. Just one more question. I Is there any studies or learnings about people who have brain trauma? Mm-hmm. Um, does our psychedelics or psilocybin aiding them or helping them in any way? Yeah, that's a good question. There's some preliminary data um, that I've seen in animals um, that have been given um, one of the compounds in ayahuasca, not the dimethyltryptamine, but the beta-carbolines that has been shown in brain injury to reduce inflammation um, in the brain, which is always kind of a big issue when you have neurological disorders. I still like like what I was talking about with spinal cord injury. I have my reservations about brain injury. I think there are people that say that it could help them anecdotally, mm-hmm. but it depends on the severity of the brain injury. Because like I was saying, if there's a physical disconnect between two circuits that need to regulate each other and that's not there and you're overstimulating one with a serotonergic drug, mm-hmm. it's going to be activating that and it doesn't have the ability to regulate that could cause some problems. Sure. And so we see this in spinal cord injury. I have to imagine it happens in the more severe brain injuries. And so I just would like to exercise a little bit of caution mm-hmm. when it comes to neurological disorders and spinal cord injury. We, one, don't fully understand everything that's going on in that disorder, let alone what's happening when you throw this powerful drug on top of it. So if it helps people, I think that's great. The anecdotes are wonderful, but I don't know that it is to the level that um, I would say that it's a treatment. <laughs> Um, I think it could help with some cognitive issues, but I think it's still too early to tell. I mean, it's helpful with depression. Um, I'm not sold on on psychedelics for PTSD at this moment. Um, I did a whole study on ayahuasca for PTSD, and I think it could potentially be re-traumatizing in the wrong conditions uh, with the wrong facilitators. Um, and I've seen evidence of that. With psilocybin, I'm not quite sure. I think we haven't ho- really seen a whole lot of studies on that, and I think there's a reason for that. Um, I think people are starting to look into it, but mostly I think depression is the main one that I think it can help with. Um, anything where there is just some deeply unresolved issue that your brain is masking from you in some way, I think it's helpful to, it brings up those kind of repressed memories and feelings and beliefs and helps us kind of come to terms with what is the optimal version of ourself that we want to be moving forward. And it helps us figure out how to get there. What about drugs and alcohol? What kind of drugs? Sugar is a drug. Well, okay, the the ones that the government comes after. You know, like I mean, I mean, do you see it as a as are we just replacing and are people just riding that excitement? You know, and then I got off heroin using this or whatever, and they're excited, and then it wears off. Or do you see it as a long term um, solution for some people? I um, mean, I think it can definitely be a long term solution for some people. I think addiction is a problem and it doesn't matter what the substance is. Um, it's a default in decision-making and, yeah. and reward-seeking. And that can be through gambling or sex or food, sugar. Yeah. I mean, so I think psychedelics can help. I think we need to rethink what we think of as a drug and medicine. Um, like alcohol, by definition, would be a Schedule One drug, but it's not even scheduled. And it's regulated with guns and yeah. And other deadly weapons. So right. I think there's something interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> there of like, why is it OK that we can mass produce and consume alcohol, which is far more harmful than things like heroin and easily mm-hmm. accessible. And yet other things are are not allowed to be used for. And, and the DEA scheduling system is not based on on evidence. There's no data that supports any of their scheduling, even though they require a mountain of it to deschedule something. Yeah, I'd really I mean, 
an intention with this podcast is to just start talking about psychedelics as medicine versus drugs. And I think it's the common theme, you know, um, that we, that they're recreational party drugs. And it turns out it's the exact opposite, at least for me and my personal story and all of the work that you guys are doing. And I think we're just finding that it's more healing and therapeutic versus party and tripping out. But it can be too. <laughs> well, I think there is also value in recreation, like recreation. I think that is preventative medicine that keeps us well and keeps things from, from harming us. Sure. We can stay in that state. Yeah. And if I can just add on to that real yeah. quick, like you'll, you'll know who this quote is from. So refresh me, but um, like, and as a therapist, like, yes, all these mental health indications, like I'm very excited for all of that. And like they can be used for the betterment of the well. Do you remember who's the quote from? Uh, I think it's Bob Jesse. Okay. Yeah. So like they can move all of us like towards like wholeness, towards wellness, towards like, you know, more integrated subconscious and conscious mind towards more spirituality. If that's what you desire, like you don't need to be sick to take a psychedelic and get benefit from it. Sure. And also you can, and yes, it's good for all of these things, but I want to emphasize that other side as well. Great. Well, I think that's about time for us today. Um, thank you guys so much for coming and sharing with me. I'm so excited to have you. And if anybody has any questions or for further information, we can send them to the Big Psych website and any other places that you have anything to share. I know you're also a part of um, what is the... Psychedelic Society? Yes. Is that, so what is it called? The Minnesota Psychedelic, Psychedelic Society, Society of Minnesota. Um, it's a it's a local chapter of a larger kind of global psychedelic society okay. organization. So there was, the initial one was started in San Francisco. Um, when I moved here in 2017, there wasn't an obvious psychedelic community. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of started a meetup page. And it's really just a way to kind of bring people together around psychedelics. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. So I'm working on transitioning us to be a funding organization for research wow. and um, okay. being a fiscal sponsor for other organizations like Big Psych because uh, they're not a nonprofit. And so we could take uh, large donations on behalf of local organizations as a nonprofit. It's great. Okay. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For more information, please visit mindsonmushrooms.com. Thank you for joining the journey. NBC. Our relation to NBC.